Today I'll be speaking with Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan uh, will be known to many of you, but for those who don't know her, she was born in Somalia in 1969. She was the daughter of a political opponent of the Somali dictatorship, and she lived in exile, moving to Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia and then Kenya. And like 98% of Somali girls, she was subjected to FGM, euphemistically called female circumcision, and came from a, a quite blinkered context of Islamic oppression. And then in a few short years, really, just recapitulated the full Enlightenment project in her own life. She escaped a forced marriage. She was being sent to marry a distant cousin in Canada. And rather than do that, she got off the plane in Frankfurt, I believe, and fled to the Netherlands, where she was granted asylum and then citizenship. And in her first years in Holland, she worked as a maid and in factories and quickly learned Dutch and then began studying at the university and wound up getting a master's in political science, worked as a translator for Somali immigrants, and began to witness this clash of Western liberal values and Islamic culture, in this case in Holland. Then eventually became a member of the Dutch parliament, where she was tasked to work on issues of immigration, to raise awareness about violence against women in that society, and honor killings, and genital mutilation, and all the rest. And then in 2004, she became very well known because her colleague, who she made a film with about the oppression of women under Islam, a film, a short film entitled Submission, her colleague, Theo Van Gogh, was murdered. And a note promising the murder of Ayan was pinned to his chest by his killer. And the amazing thing, and you can read about this in Ayan's books, in The Caged Virgin and Infidel and Nomad and Heretic, the amazing thing about her story is that it exposed just the complete inability of Dutch society to deal with this problem and keep her safe. And Ayan remains a person with exquisite security concerns. And most unjustly, she is a frequent target of, quote, feminists and people on the left who object to her criticism of Islam. I mean, here you have one of the most courageous people on earth championing the rights of women and paying an extraordinary price for doing so, and she's derided by people on the left as a bigot. One of the most frustrating things in my life has been to see Ayan get criticized by imbeciles. As unpleasant as my encounter with Ben Affleck was on real time, my encounter with Nick Kristoff of the New York Times in the green room afterwards was worse, because Nick is among the army of seemingly enlightened liberals who can't figure out that Ayan is a, a true feminist icon and hero. So in any case, Ayan, though she is liberal in the classical sense on almost every question, has really only been supported, for the most part, by conservatives in the U.S. as someone fighting for human rights. 
and the rights of women. And that has been a real disservice to her message. Nevertheless, she was voted in 2005 as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, and she has started the Ayan Hirsi Ali Foundation, the AHA Foundation, AHA. A link to that can be found on my website. And she is just an extraordinary woman. Our time was somewhat abbreviated here. We had an hour to work with, but it was great to get her voice on the podcast. And so I now bring you Ayan Hirsi Ali. I am here with Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sam, thank you very much for having me. Great to talk to you. As always, it's great to have an excuse to talk to you. <laughs> yes, same here. How do you describe what you do at this point? Um, I describe it as it's almost like um, running on a treadmill and never getting off. You know, for the last 15 years, I've been trying to educate the enlightened world on Islam and the threat that it poses to women, to people like me who have chosen not to believe in God, to Christians, to Jews, even to, and probably I would say mainly to those who actually are Muslims and believe in the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad. I was trying to remember how we first got in touch. I think, if I'm not mistaken, and this is the, the only time this has happened in my life, I think I actually sent you a piece of fan mail. You sent and, me a beautiful letter, yeah. A beautiful letter and your book, and and that's how we met. Yeah, that's that's how I found out about you. It was uh, just after you had written, and the book was The End of Faith. Yeah, that's amazing, because, uh, you know, now one imagines it's just impossible to reach someone with a letter. You know, you, you can occasionally get people with email, but I remember reading about you in the New York Times Magazine and just being totally blown away by you and your story, and then I just, I don't know how I got the, the relevant address, but I remember sending you a letter and that achieving a connection. It was really, it's fantastic that it happened. Yeah, it was, you sent it to um, the parliament in The Hague, the Dutch parliament. I was a member then, and it's astounding to me today how on that very same platform, those issues that, you know, a decade ago we were talking about the rights of women, we were talking about Islamic extremism, we were talking about terrorism, how nothing, it seems nothing has moved forward, except what way back then were warnings from my side and others are now unfolding in the Netherlands and on the European continent. If you now see how women are treated, not just Muslim women in Muslim households, but how because of, uh, you know, a lot of men coming from Africa, from South Asia, from the Middle East, how they are now treating non-Muslim women. It, it is no longer safe in the public square in Europe, in Germany, in Sweden, in the Netherlands. It, it's no longer, you know, the kind of safety I used to take for granted. Um, I remember coming in 1992 to the Netherlands and really marveling at how at 1 a.m. at night, friends of mine would, girls, would take their bicycles and just, they could go anywhere. And now that's all gone. Mm, well, I, I want to get deeply into that. I want to talk about immigration and, and the migrant crisis and the future of Europe. But before we go there, I just, I want to talk a little bit about your personal story. I, I don't want to go into it in great depth because you and I have done that on my blog and I, I will link to that article with this podcast so people can read 
that first conversation we had, and, and, and your story will be pretty familiar to most of our listeners, but what do you think you would be doing if your collision with Islamist theocracy hadn't occurred? I guess I would still be in academia, probably, uh, you know, writing on and learning um, topics that I really care about. I could take time off to do art, learn about music, literature, travel. I think I mm. would lead the life of the average American woman or the average Dutch woman. And in fact, before I got into this, that's exactly what I was doing. Mm. I had found a job uh, with a think tank in Amsterdam, and I had been asked by my boss to work on the issue of immigration. And I remember complaining and saying, well, are you asking me to do that because I'm an immigrant? I'd like to do uh, the European Union and ever closer integration. I'm fascinated by that topic. Please let me do that. And he said, you can always do that, but we, we only want you to do immigration now because it's a hot topic. So the answer to your question is I would be leading the life of, I think, the average American woman or the average European woman if it hadn't been for 9-11 and what happened afterwards. Do you think you'd still be in government? I mean, back then I wasn't in government. I had a healthy interest in politics, but I had no plans to become a politician. Mm. Uh, I was fascinated by ideas, and that's why I chose to work with this think tank. It was a social democratic think tank. Sam, you have to understand that ideas such as social democracy and liberalism and all that, that, that was all new to me. And I had this hunger of you know, wanting to find out more and discuss in depth how a small place like the Netherlands was able to be so wealthy and to be able to be so stable. And I, I mean, I came, I grew up in Somalia. I lived in Saudi Arabia, in Ethiopia, in Kenya. To me, for a whole nation to, to live in peace with one another, to respect the rights of girls and women, this used to be just things that we read about. It wasn't real for me. And I was fascinated. I still am. And, you know, how did these things come about? Uh, and now <laughs> my big worry is how can we hold on to it? How can we hold on to these freedoms and to the notion of equality and the rule of law? How would you describe yourself politically at this point? I'm still a classical liberal. I think I'll always remain a classical liberal. I always need to explain what that means to the average American because I, a liberal for an American is maybe someone on the far left. Mm. <laughs> or the hard left or, you know, someone who reads the nation and, and believes in big government and or emphasizes justice more than liberty. I, politically, I would describe myself, I would say perhaps right in the middle between the two parties. There are things about the Democratic Party that um, I do not like and I think are wrong, and the same applies to the Republican Party. So a classical liberal, a, a centrist, a libertarian, I love your work on reason. In that sense, I think I'm, I've been very stable in terms of my ideas. I've always found it alarming, and we, we've spoken about this before, that so many liberals ditch their commitment to gender equality and attack you in the name of religious sensitivity. And I'm wondering, and this, this also explains why you have been associated with classically conservative think tanks. Is this changing at all? Have you made any headway in, on the left, in, in the U.S. in particular? I, I don't want to claim uh, any progress 
that we now see on the left in admitting that Islam as a doctrine, as a civilization, as a culture, subjugates women and is a very intolerant doctrine. Where there is admission of that, I want to say that it mostly probably comes from those people on the left who are still willing to look at facts and allow the facts to change their minds. You know, with the rise of ISIS, even though there is a huge taboo in Western countries on the discussion of Islam, you can see for yourself when verses from the Holy Quran and the practices uh, of the Prophet Muhammad are applied in practice, what that looks like. You get the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And I think so many people on the left can see that now. Mm. And for those who are rational uh, people, I think they're willing to have these facts change their minds. The internet has also helped a lot. You know, Saudi Arabia is a very closed society, and it's very difficult to see what's going on there. And people who, are, who <laughs> were very happy to ignore what was going on there are now finding that it's extremely difficult in all this, their mission work, uh, their da'wah, their you know, Islamic missionary work that they have been propagating for at least the last four decades. Uh, what we're now seeing is the outcome of that. Uh, and that around the world, not just in the Middle East, you know, my continent, the country, I come from Africa, groups like Al-Shabaab in Somalia and Boko Haram in Nigeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh now, you've seen what's going on there with all the free thinkers and free bloggers uh, being targeted and hacked to death on the streets. This is a direct consequence of the propagation of radical Sunni Islam. And people on the left can now see it. And those who want to see and learn, I think they are changing their minds. And I hope that they are alarmed enough by it to know that sitting around and condemning it is not enough. Well, you must get the, the frequent criticism, as I do, that, and this comes from both Muslim obscurantists and, and their liberal apologists, that you are promulgating the same interpretation of Islam as ISIS does, or as the extremists do, by drawing this linkage between ideology and behavior, and therefore you're giving it legitimacy. And obviously, the, you know, the President of the United States has taken this line that you really don't want to call ISIS or any similar group Islamic in any sense. What do you say to that? A number of things. I think the first thing is, I know that these things are well intended. I think that our President Obama, he really means well. He has good intentions when he refuses to associate Islam, the religion of, yes, one-fifth of humanity, with uh, the outcome of that religion. You know, that, that when, once you apply that doctrine, that's what you see. It's well intended. But what he's also expressing is a lack of respect for Muslims as reasonable individuals. The assumption that by pretending that what we see has nothing to do with Islam is an assumption. I hear it very, I'm trying to choose my words as carefully as I can. If you think that a human being who happens to be Muslim lacks reason, if you think that that human being will lash out in violence, if you think of that human being as a child not mature enough to handle ideas, then you're going to talk to that human being and about that human being in a way 
I would say in exactly the same way that our president and many other Western leaders talk to and talk about Muslims. Mm. Here's where the world is upside down. You're doing all of this because you want to stimulate respect from the non-Western, sorry, the non-Islamic public for Muslims and not to be prejudiced against them. But how can you ever achieve that when you refuse to allow them onto this platform of reason? Because human beings, I believe, change their minds not because of the gun, not because of violence, but through persuasion. And if you want to persuade most Muslims to reform their religion or to give up at least those parts, such as jihad and sharia, that are violent and oppressive, you just have to be explicit about what this doctrine says. Not doing so means you're simply discriminating against them. You don't take them. It's the, it's the expect it is the, the prejudice of law expectations. Yeah, and, and ironically, you're you're doing absolutely nothing to come to the aid of the most vulnerable people in those communities. So you're not you're not empowering reformers and women and everyone else who can't really find their voice because there's no safe context in which to do it. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating to not have this talked about. It's frustrating because here I am trying to say, okay, I, I got out of a context where my rights were compromised and I felt that I was not in control of my life. And in the West, in the Netherlands and here in the US, I have found a life where I am in control of my destiny. Now, I find it my duty, as you do, and I think as many, many people uh, here do, that you can't just turn away from the others, the other girls and women who are in that context. But how on earth can I explain the subjugation that they're submitted to, the child marriages, the forced marriages, the honor killings, without talking about the religion, the doctrine, the culture? that has brought that forth. On that point, how do you address the rights of women, say, in majority Muslim countries and even in the Muslim community in the West when women themselves are often the oppressors or at least collaborating in oppression? And how do you deal with someone like Dalia Mujahid, who, who just went on The Daily Show and celebrated the hijab as a sign of female empowerment and got absolutely no pushback? This has to be fairly bewildering. I mean, it is, it is fairly bewildering for the liberal non-Muslim who looks at this and says, well, what is the reality here? We're being told by women in veils that this is their choice and that it is a sign of you know, colonialist arrogance to judge that anyone wearing the veil, in, whether it's in Afghanistan or anywhere else, is being oppressed. The only way to do it, the only way that I know, is to talk about it, to publish, to, you know, take to public platforms to discuss it and to air what exactly it means to be forced to wear the veil. I've written about this a lot, and I discuss it. And that's, unfortunately, again, through the internet, I have found a connection with women who choose not to wear the veil. They write to me, they call me, they talk to me, there's the AHA Foundation, and they explain, mm. they relate to my experience, and they explain to me that they are not like Dalia Mugahed, that all these women 
who are covering themselves from head to toe and who are saying that they speak for Muslim women don't really speak for them. That if they didn't fear for their lives, if they didn't fear that they would be ostracized in their own communities or that their parents would beat them up, lock them up, take away whatever little rights that they have, they would have spoken out themselves if they had these platforms. What would you say to, to Dahlia? Have you have you ever addressed Dahlia or someone like her in, in a public platform that where there's video that I could point people to? I've had when I just published um, when I just published Heretic, the last book, I was with her uh, on a discussion on MPR, and I think the way MPR did it, they first interviewed her and then they interviewed me mm. very early on when I came. To the U.S. in 2006, 2007, I was at the Brookings Institute, and she and other women were there defending the hijab, defending the position of women and the status of women in Islam, and saying that all the excesses that we see are exaggerated and committed by a fringe who are not truly Islamic. So I have I have had discussions with her, but I've come to the conclusion that. I don't need to convince Dalia Mugahed to change her mind. Mm. I need to get as many people as possible to see for themselves what is done to women in the name of Islam. I need to remind them that that treatment of women is not going to stay only within Muslim households and Muslim countries when the world is globalizing as it is. And everything I've been saying so far. It, 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 we, we see it now in Europe. There are gangs of Muslim men in Sweden, in Germany, in Britain, who are singling out non-Muslim women, sometimes blonde women only. Mm. Now tell me how, I know that's misogynistic, but how is that not racist? How is it not racist to, to organize, for men to organize themselves as gangs and only target one group of women? based on their skin color and their hair color. And, and you say target for, for what? Rape, for, se- for sexual rape, abuse, rape? For sexual and, abuse, yeah. Do you have a sense that this is being fairly reported on in Europe? and Or is, or is there a, a kind of politically correct suppression of this news? Because I, I, in the initial wave with the, the Cologne catastrophe, there, was, there were reports that that this was actually being suppressed and and people were I mean there was even this extreme case of someone in I believe it was the German government some woman in, in the G- German government had herself been raped by three migrants and when she reported it to the police she lie initially lied about their identities because she didn't want to give further cause for for racism in her culture so she you know said that three german men had raped her to sp- speak honestly about the problem, there's this social impediment of you know, an understandable one, especially in a place like Germany, that you don't want to give voice to any kind of kind of global animus toward immigrants or toward you know, any one group of people. What's the level of discussion there? I mean, right, I'm following events there, and especially in Germany right now. And what I see is that there is on the side of the establishment, so institutions of government, such as the police, the courts. Um, but also the press. There is this mad idea, in my view, completely mad idea, that if you call things by their name, immigrant men come in and they go out in groups and they harass young girls and they rape women. They have even there are cases of 
young boys being raped as well, that if they report honestly on that, that somehow they're going to create a context of mass racism against immigration and against these immigrants. Mm. But I think you have to see, you have to split the two issues. You have to fight racism and prejudice wherever it turns up its ugly head. But it's, it's also, these, these men come from cultures that are prejudiced against women. And just because they cross the German border, it doesn't mean that they immediately become German. They, they bring with them those attitudes and customs and values and outlook on the status and position of women. So you cannot sacrifice the rights of women and children in order to hold on to this false and dangerous ideology of multiculturalism, which is not working. It has failed. Everywhere where it's been applied, it's failed completely. It hasn't stopped racism. There are more people today in Germany who are anti-immigrant because of the self-censorship, because of these mm. fake hate laws that they're passing, and because of multiculturalism. Then if we were to discuss these issues honestly and then educate the young men who come from these cultures on the rights of women, how are they ever supposed to integrate or assimilate into that society if you cannot discuss the fact that they are, I mean, if a victim of rape is now pretending that it was German men who did it, how on earth are you ever going to correct this? Yeah, there was just a story, I think, in the last few days in Austria. It's been hurled at me in several different ways. I'm sure you have heard it. They had brought some recent migrants to a public pool as a kind of integration outing. And one of these men, when he went to the bathroom, got his hands on a 10-year-old boy and raped him in the stall. And then when the boy came out and, you know, hysterical and complained about this to his parents and the police were called, the man claimed to have no idea that there was anything wrong with this. And he was having a, quote, sexual emergency, hadn't seen his wife in four months. And he was initially prosecuted, but the charges against him were dropped. I, I think he's, I think he's being retried because it was judged that he, you know, as a matter of, you know, cultural difference, couldn't have known that it wasn't okay to rape a 10-year-old boy anally and injure him and all the rest. And it's just, when you, take, when you focus on a case like that, it just seems like we're witnessing the suicide of a civilization. Absolutely. And it just tells you how absurd this whole multiculturalism deal is. So a 10-year-old boy has his life destroyed completely destroyed after this. And the 20-year-old man from Iraq who rapes him is pardoned in court on the grounds that he didn't understand what the boy was talking about. And I believe that this case was in Austria. Yeah. But it's not only in Austria and in Germany. It is the Scandinavian countries. In fact, in Norway, they've started classes, an, an initiative by immigrant men, for immigrant men, to educate them on sexuality. And it's in a way to civilize them, really. That's what we're talking about. And instead of civilizing the people who come in, who are uncivilized, we are sacrificing Western civilization and its inhabitants, and especially its children and its women, to this barbarism. It's pure barbarism. Before we get deeper into this, and I, and I think there is more to say about immigration, certainly, and about the case of Europe, and I also want to reflect on, on U.S. politics in light of this concern, but I just have a, a, a question about... And this is, this is something I, I really struggle with, because as you know, I've spent a lot of time criticizing Islam and Islamism and, and its spread. And 
yet I'm very much you know a liberal in in certainly in the classical sense and don't want to be aligned at all with the paranoid fringe of the right so given that there's a conspiracy among islamists to spread theocracy yeah. and and to, and to use the norms and institutions of open societies to their advantage you know there's no question that this I is I mean it's true, an open policy it's of, not a conspiracy it's a very open policy that they are yes very well organized well financed why is it a conspiracy it's in plain sight yes yeah. it's it's a, an agenda but then there are there are more and less clever instances of this where they where you have people pretending to be more liberal than they in fact are yeah so I'm just wondering, and then, then there's this other fact, which we've just begun to describe, which is not so much Islamism, but just radically different cultural norms, which are in collision with the nature of, of a global civil society and its norms. How can we be on our guard against this? How can we resist this? How can we call attention to this without tipping over into the kinds of conspiracy thinking that we find on the right? What is the line between legitimate concern and paranoia? Facts. And we need to protect, you know, see, if I'm paranoid and I'm accusing people of uh, things that don't exist and that are not there, I have to have that platform where you can correct me and you can say, no, you've got it all wrong. Here are the facts. And what we are doing now in the West, including the United States today, is to cede control of the platform of ideas. We are self-censoring. We're introducing notions of hate law. What is that? And we're stigmatizing people who bring these things up. So the, I think the most important, there are many ways, but the most important way to protect ourselves from this onslaught of Islamism and uh, cultural misogyny, uh, intolerance, is by protecting the platform, the place where of exchange of ideas. And that takes you straight to the rule of law. Because, Sam, you and I have talked a lot about this. The Islamists want to make use and abuse the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of association, all of these freedoms. But when their critics use their freedom to show the world what they're doing, they threaten with violence. So, the most important thing that our government and our governments need to do is to protect us. That's the rule of law, to protect us so that we can have these open discussions. But we, we're not doing that. Our government is doing exactly the opposite. We're constantly appeasing them and obliging them and th then coming up with these crazy ideas of self-censorship. Then what do you do with the, the opposing uh, but similarly heavy-handed efforts to legislate so for instance like the burkini ban in france yeah, yeah. What, what what was what was your position on that my position is it's absurd you don't have to bring legislation into when you don't want to have that i i really don't i was a politician i was a legislator and we fully understood that making laws can't solve all social problems some of these issues have to be debated honestly you have to educate people remember nazism national socialism Remember communism. Mm. When Hitler and his people were defeated, the next thing that the Europeans did and the Germans did was to educate their public on why the ideas that Hitler espoused were bad. That's why they still fear white supremacy. 
and the ideology of white supremacy. But white supremacy was defeated afterwards and has forever remained a fringe because we teach our kids from the time they are four or five until we are all beyond university that that type of prejudice leads to genocide. It leads to horrors. It's awful. Why can't we do that and discuss openly other ideas with similar outcomes? Only because they belong to a minority. And when we talk about minorities in a world as globalized as this, I wonder who is the minority here? How do you view the future of Europe at this point? The future of Europe, I mean, there is um, the people of Europe are standing up against this. And they are forming political parties. They are forming organizations. Even when newspapers refuse, the mainstream media refuses to carry some of these stories, people talk about it. If you don't give, and here I'm going to get myself again into trouble, but most political scientists will tell you that when you stifle uh, dissent, when you stifle dissent, there is a very high chance that people will turn to political violence. So with multiculturalism, with this self-censorship, with the elites completely ignoring the needs of the citizens that elected them, they are creating the context for a civil war. In France, people, France has been in a state of emergency since November 13 last year. It's almost a year now, and people don't Mm -hmm. know that. They forget that. In France, people openly talk about civil war. Walk me through Western Europe for a moment. How would you rank order the problem in countries like France and Germany and and Holland and the UK? Do you you have a sense of the differences among them? The larger the scale of Muslim immigrants in a country, the bigger the problems. Then combine that with the more restrictive a country is or has become, the more politically correct it is, the more free speech is restricted, the higher the likelihood of violence. So take a country like Switzerland. They do have a considerable number of Muslim immigrants, but they also have a system where they allow the population to weigh in on almost everything and anything. And to this day, Switzerland is, I think, the least like it. it, it Switzerland will have the most, and this is, a, this is all very relative, but the most mm. assimilated number of Muslim immigrants. And they have, I think, the least likelihood of violence erupting there. A country like France, on the other hand, or Sweden, I worry a lot about Sweden because the self-censorship has reached such an extreme height. And the immigrants who as diverse as can be, but the ones who are refusing to assimilate, the ones who are causing problems, are getting away too frequently with such, in my view, enormous crimes as rapes, gang gang rapes, um, robberies. I mean, it's crazy. And people Mm -hmm. are now doing what Americans usually do, which is they're buying guns, they're arming themselves. These are reports in Sweden. People are getting gun licenses to protect themselves because their own government won't protect them. I want to seize on something you just said about the the correlation between the percentage of Muslims in the population and the size of the problem. 
put that on the scale opposing our moral obligation to respond to some profoundly shocking inequalities in luck in our world. So you have people who are, through no fault of their own, living in the hell realm of Syria and Iraq at this moment and trying to get out. You know, many of them are are fleeing ISIS, having no sympathy for their project. They are part of this, this wave of migration, which is, you know, pointed in all directions, but mostly toward Europe at the moment. And I mean, needless to say, your heart breaks for many of these people. I mean, certainly all the people who are not Islamists and not aspiring rapists and and people who who will resist assimilating at, at any cost. What do you do with the fact that there's? I mean, again, that you know that you you can only vet people as well as you can vet them. And obviously, Europe, given the tsunami of people that arrived, has not done a good job of vetting at all. What should be done about Syria and the the migrant crisis in particular, and what and how do you view immigration? Because when I th- when I think of the the impulse to keep Muslims out of the United States, say you know, it's something I understand as impractical as it is. I certainly understand that desire, given the concerns. But w- when I think about that, I immediately think about keeping someone like you out, right, or your former self you were one of these migrants in another context. And, you know, you are, as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of the most important people in your generation. You know, you are my only friend who I always describe as my friend and hero. And there's no exaggeration in that at all. So tell me your thoughts on, on immigration, given the fact that as the proportion of Muslims in a society grows, all of these problems, whatever percentage of, of Muslims are jihadists, let's, we can make it as tiny a percent as you want, and whatever larger percentage are Islamists, and we can make that a very tiny percentage, and whatever percentage are conservative in their attitudes so as to be hostile to freedom of speech and the rights of women and, and everything else that lie at the core of our values, the moment you begin to scale up these percentages, of just the percentage of, of Muslims in any society, you will begin to scale of necessity the, the smaller percentages of people who will not assimilate. Just tell me how you think about that problem going forward, both for, for Europe and for the U.S. I've, I've written about this, um, and I think step one would obviously be to have an honest and open discussion, because if you don't have all the facts on the table and if you don't discuss it as openly as you should, you'll not be able to design policies that address this enormous problem. And it's an enormous problem. It's a problem of foreign policy on our side. The U.S., I think, should take the leadership in this. I don't think it's realistic to say we're going to take everyone who is affected by civil war from the Middle East and bring them into the West. It's simply not realistic because of the scale of the problem. Having said all of that, I think that closing the doors to all immigrants or to all Muslims is morally wrong. Um, I wrote an article for a German paper distinguishing between four types of immigrants. And I called the first one an adapter, someone who comes in with the intention of acquiring 
a better life for himself or herself and comes with the intention of abiding by the laws of the host society and goes about learning what he or she needs to learn and find a job, the adapter, assimilate. And I know that there are because I know other immigrants who came in with me in 1992 who went down the same path. Then there's a second type of immigrant, and I call, I've given that immigrant the label menace. It's the young man, for whatever reason, who either drops out of school or, for whatever reason, just ends up becoming a menace. Crime, grime, rape, you know, prison in, prison out, caught in, caught out, never contributes to society, only takes. Then there's a third group, the fundamentalist or the fanatic, really, is the word, who believes that the host society should convert to Islam and live by Sharia laws. And then number four, for a lack of a better label, I call them the coasters. This is a large group of people. They have no intention to harm anyone. But because Europe and increasingly the United States provide these welfare entitlements, they, they come to get that. And their relatives who are here say, you know, I live here and I have a house and I have a car and I have this and I have that and I don't work. So if you take these four categories of immigrants, and maybe you can make five or ten categories, but I've decided I've been watching this problem for a while and I come to these four types of, of, of four profiles of, say, an individual immigrant, you can then say, okay, this is the experience we have now. We now know that there are these four groups. We can develop an immigration plan that allows in the first group, the adapters, and keeps out the other three. But you can't, you can't develop any kind of plan if you're not honest with yourself about the problems and the magnitude of these problems. In many of these countries, you're not allowed to associate immigrants who are Muslim with the things that they do that make the populations very angry that th those immigrants do in the name of their religion. So how can, you, how can you get to, how can you solve the problem? How can you address the problem if you self-censor in that way? And how can you tell the difference between the adapters who I think we should be helping and we should be bringing in and we should be rescuing from the fanatic who wants to kill you? Do you know what the process of vetting looks like now and and do you have a sense of how much better it could be i mean and do you know how it how it is in the states versus europe so there are different you know how complex this problem is and uh, especially in europe right now in europe they make a distinction between asylum seekers refugees and economic migrants and the way they do that is by interviewing individual immigrants as they come in you get questions like, why are you here? Where do you come from? You know, the usual intake questions. Mm -hmm. And based on that, because in Europe, most of these immigrants, I would say 99% of them simply come in and ask for asylum. So you start with that status of being an asylum seeker. There's a smaller group of people who are resettled from refugee camps around the world. And every country takes a certain number of people, and I think per capita the United States, United States takes quite a lot. But these systems of vetting uh, fail because you can be 
in a refugee camp between the border of Kenya and Somalia or between, you know, say you fled um, Syria and you happen to be in Jordan or in parts of Iraq, you can be in refugee camps there and you can still be a fanatic. In fact, if you look at the guy who uh, attempted several bombings in New York and New Jersey the other day, he came here as a child. His father was a, a refugee from Afghanistan. So it, it, it's, you can't, I don't think that you can vet people based only on the level of suffering that they are exposed to or, that, or the dangers that they're exposed to. Uh, we're seeing, we're learning from experience that that doesn't always work. It doesn't always work out that way. And in fact, I want to argue, if you want to bring in people and you want them to assimilate, you have to negotiate with them at that stage of entry that we will only let you into, allow you into the country if you show a preparedness to assimilate. And as you allow people in, you test them on that. You have a contract. You come here into safety and make something of your life, but in exchange, you abide by the law and you respect the values and the norms of our country. It seems to me that that would catch people who are the non-fanatics. I mean, this, this, this would catch people who are just have social norms based on their religion and based on their culture that they're not willing to relinquish, and then they, then they would give signs of that through this intake process. But if you have someone who is actually a jihadist, you know, someone who, who is an ISIS fighter who's deciding to come to the West to wage jihad, it would seem pretty easy to deceive people through this process and just pretend to be a moderate or even a unbeliever. You are right about that. And we've seen a number of cases where fanatics, jihadists, um, who are plotting a terrorist act, they shave their beards, they drink alcohol, they, they openly do things to take attention away from themselves so that they can sneak in. But most of these guys, mainly guys and girls too, are people who have lived in Europe, went to join ISIS, and then are on their way back. So they know exactly... Mm how they should behave in order not to draw attention on themselves. Um, it's a relatively small group. And I think, as with every problem, we can stay one step ahead of them. This is a determined enemy, and they are, for the moment, they are here to stay. And the number of Islamists who are nonviolent but who at some point um, will turn to violence is so large in the world that I think it is going to take at least a generation or two before we can fully address that issue. Uh, but censorship, self-censorship, um, and trying to fool the general public is not going to make this problem go away. So I see we're getting close to our uh, stopping point at this point, but I don't think I've heard you comment on the election in the U.S. I have been extremely hard on Trump I've decided I wanted to completely stay out of it because the issues that I address, radical Islam, the rights of women, they transcend both parties. The only way to oppose Donald Trump really as unfit for the presidency, as I have, is to support Hillary Clinton no matter how 
tepidly and, and no matter how many caveats you you issue you you know that that really is the only thing standing between us and and a Trump presidency but what i find is there are many people in my audience who are essentially single issue voters who are worried about the very topic we're talking about perhaps above all else and so hillary's desire to increase immigration or to, to increase the refugees from syria from 10,000 to 65,000 you know, often described accurately as a 550% increase. That is held up as a, a very worrying sign. Huma Abedin, her close advisor, and her connection to her own mother, who's apparently quite the doctrinaire Islamist, that is held up as a worrying, worrying sign. And you can go down that rabbit hole and you know, hear about conspiracies that include Hillary as essentially a shill for for the Saudis and the fact that the Clinton Foundation has taken money from all the Gulf states, you know, into in, the tens of millions of dollars. The net result of all of that is that people think, I mean, what they think is, is a little incoherent because they also think that she's too much of a warmonger. She's too hawkish. She's, she's too inclined to get us into yet another war where we're, we're going to kill more Muslims. So you know, on the one hand, they're, they're arguing that she is an ally of Islamists and jihadists, and then on the other, that she's too likely to kill too many of them. So it doesn't make much sense, but I'm wondering, let's just take the case of Huma Abedin. Does she worry you at all? I mean, like, are we going into the land of right-wing crack pottery to worry about her affiliations with her mom and, and what's behind all that? I think people who raise the question, and this is not only uh, regarding Hillary Clinton, but also uh, President Obama, President Bush, 9-11 came and the U.S. government was looking for advisors on Islam, on Muslims, on national security. And right now, the people in place, it's not one particular candidate uh, who I think is worse than the other. The people that we, whose advice we listen to and we've been listening to are the wrong people. Are the wrong people to what degree? To like truly sinister Islamists who, who are trying to spread theocracy or just apologists who are just not willing to, to speak honestly about the problem? The, the Muslims whom we consult, the United States government consults, many of them do have an agenda of da'wah or Islamization. Think of, we just talked about Dalia Mugahed uh, earlier in the interview. Mm. Uh, she was, you know, one of several other advisors to President Obama. There are people who advised President Bush on the grounds that they spoke for Muslims and then ended up in prison. Who uh, Others, same thing. The Muslim Brotherhood, you know, the Council of American Islamic Relations, uh, Muslim student, so there's there's a whole web of individuals and organizations that are tied to the Muslim Brotherhood or came forth out of the Muslim Brotherhood who are paid advisors to our government. And that is not so much, I wouldn't say that that is the problem of one particular candidate. I think it is a problem of, most Americans don't know that much about Islam, but those in government, especially because they put this big taboo on Islamic doctrine, 
on Sharia law, on jihad, etc., for themselves, they can't tell the difference between an Islamist with an agenda to spread Islamism in the U.S. and one who isn't that way. I mean, there are many Muslims here who are patriotic Americans who would love to help our government, who have served uh, in various capacities, who are not consulted by the government. Mm. Because some of those people inside the government, Muslims who are consulted, they, they say people like Zuhdi Jassar or Asra Nomani. I don't know if you know these individuals. Yeah, I know Asra. Yeah, you know Asra. And Zuhdi Jassar served in the Navy, but these are both, I mean, Zuhdi, they're both Muslims. Uh, they're not consulted by our government. They consult Dalia Mugahed and the people from Isna. Yeah, well, the, the role that CARE has played has been very insidious. I mean, that's, you know, they, the fact that every time something happens, CNN decides that the true spokesman for the Muslim community in the U.S. is whoever the representative of CARE is at the moment. That is a, a worrying trend. And, and it's, it is, it's embedded. It's not something that you can, you know, you can't just turn the page. You have to go really through the entire government bureaucracy uh, to prize out the men and women with an Islamist agenda. But to do that, you then have to start calling things by their name. And that's what our government doesn't want to do. And because of that, these conspiracy theories um, take on a life of their own. Hmm. Huma Abedin, to me, does not look like an Islamist. No. Did you, did you see the documentary Wiener? No. Oh, so, so I mean, so in watching that, yeah, I just, I came away feeling that if she's an Islamist, she's actually the best actress on earth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that seems unlikely. Yeah. No, I don't think Huma Abedin is an Islamist in the closet. But I think if we could have an honest discussion about, you know, how her mother is tied to brotherhood types and what would be in it for her mother and her circle of friends and the people with that agenda to influence mm. U.S. government? I think that's a legitimate question. But mm. from what I know of Islam, a woman who marries a Jewish man who doesn't wear the veil and who, to all intents and purposes, really doesn't lead uh, a Muslim's life, I don't want to put her in danger, but uh, she doesn't appear to me as an Islamist. I know you're up against your schedule, but th this, I think, has been enough. This is it's great to get your expertise on this question at this moment, and it's obviously a pleasure to hear your voice. Same here. It's a pleasure to hear your voice, and please pass my love to your family. I will. I will, likewise. Okay, well, that was Ayan Hirsi Ali, and I hope you got a sense of just what a good person she is and that her focus is on the rights of women and on human freedom globally. And I hope you noticed that she said that she thought we have a moral obligation to bring in Muslim refugees who we can vet. I doubt you detected in anything she said a hatred for groups of people or really any view that could be construed as, as bigotry. So if you got a sense of Ayan over the course of this hour, you will appreciate how deranged the left has become, ethically speaking, in the West. Because the very day we recorded this conversation, the Southern Poverty Law Center, this flagship institution 
to combat white supremacist hate groups. This is the organization started by Morris Dees that has sued the Ku Klux Klan and and other neo-Nazi groups. It is relied upon by journalists to summarize the nefarious work of white supremacists and other hate groups in the U.S. This institution today just declared Ayan and my friend Majid Nawaz, who I wrote my book Islam and the Future of Tolerance with, just declared both of them, along with I think 13 other people, to be anti-Muslim extremists, actually grouping them alongside groups like the KKK. This is how crazy the apologetics for Islam have grown. And this is how destructive it is of people's reputations. You know, a Google search on Ayan and Majid right now returns this judgment about them, that they are merchants of hate. Unbelievable. And the person responsible for this at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a man named Mark Potok, has been interviewed a few times in The Atlantic and elsewhere, and he is totally smug and unrepentant, doesn't even care to investigate whether he got this wrong. And you can see where he got it, because the reasons they give for sliming Ayan and Majid in this way are the direct result of dishonest hit pieces that were written about them in the past, and a litany of charges that have already been answered for both of them. And it should go without saying that being categorized in this way, literally lumped in with neo-Nazis and the KKK, raises Ion's and Majid's security concerns, and the concerns, no doubt, of everyone on that list. It's an absolute disgrace. Majid and Ayan remain two of the bravest and most ethical people out there. And this only proves just how important it is that we talk about these things honestly, that we talk about religion and politics and the power of ideas and the actual motivations of people in this world, honestly. And Majid and Ayan are doing that impeccably. And whatever I can do to support their voices, I will continue to do. Once again, thank you for listening.